Slayers and Slayers. This is Mixtress Ray, and you're listening to What's This Bitch Talking About? To which the answer to that question is every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer exactly 20 years after its original air date. Um, first of all, I totally got it wrong with Angel for some reason, like I told you guys last week, that, um, they showed, like, the Angel episode, like, a week early, which they did. They premiered the first episode of Angel a week before the first episode of Buffy of the season, but they did have an episode the following week, but I just didn't have it written down. I just forgotten to write that one down. So today I watched two episodes of Angel so that I could get caught up, and the episode of Buffy. So the episode of Buffy we're talking about today is called Afterlife, and the episodes of Angel, which we're going to get into first really quick, are, let me get to the page in my uh, episode guide here, That Vision Thing, which I should have talked about last week, and That Old Gang of Mine. Two episodes in a row that start with that. That's just kind of clunky. That's just kind of clunky, eh? Okay. So, um, what do we want to start, start with? First of all, not a single one of you bitches. I, in a, in a moment of vulnerability and desperation last week, I asked you, are any of you listening? And not a single person. <laughs> so from now on, I'm just going to assume that my mom is the only person listening to this. So in that case, I really have to keep the discussions of Angel short because she refuses to even watch it with me. Okay, so I did, I just, I totally sacrificed for you guys today, just in case any of you care. I watched two Angel episodes when I just, I am on limited time, like right now. Oh God. Anyway, okay. So the description of that vision thing. Cordelia's visions begin leaving physical marks on her body and Angel vows to find out what's going on. So this is, it's not even the culmination of this, this whole thing that they've been building up with Cordelia. Like she's been getting these like terrible migraines and stuff after getting the visions. And they've been kind of hinting at the fact that it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And she really can't handle it anymore. Um, they've been hinting at that for a long time now. And this isn't even the total culmination of that because in this episode, she starts getting like physical marks on her body. Like she has a vision of like a monster with these gigantic claws. And then she actually has terrible cuts on her body, claw marks, um, and stuff. And then you later find in the episode that it's it's not actually the powers that be, as they're called, which are the ones that give her the visions in Angel. It's not actually the powers that be that are giving her these particular visions. It is someone hired by Wolfram and Hart, somebody that can, like, send a vision and, like, it was some kind of magical wounds that they were giving her. That she had boils all over her face and, like... It was just really traumatic. It was like they were just really putting Cordelia through it in this episode. And there were a few things that I highlighted in the episode guide. Let's see. And again in this episode, despite being clawed, burned, and covered in boils, she holds on to those visions. The old superficial Cordelia is long gone. So, I mean, this is just, you know, 
basically just show the growth of her character, which I'm surprised that they're even trying to show growth in Cordelia's character left over from... Because they're assuming that you've seen Cordelia since the beginning, since her days on Buffy. But that's the only assumption that this show makes that it's like any connection to Buffy, really, as far as the characters. Like, they don't really refer back often to who Angel was on Buffy or who Wesley was on Buffy. But Cordelia, her history on Buffy is assumed to be known, which it just doesn't make sense. They're not very consistent. One thing that I would like to point out, neither one of these episodes was there a single moment where like Angel gets a phone call or there's like any kind of like reference to someone telling him that Buffy's alive. I mean, I guess we can assume that they were just kind of distracted and they hadn't told him yet. Maybe there is going to be some kind of crossover where we find some reference to him knowing Buffy's alive again. It just really bothers me that they're not, I mean, this is the most important number one love of his life. Wouldn't he want to know that she's alive again? Wouldn't someone think to tell him? Because they would. But, you know, they're just ignoring Buffy. Anyway, y'all know how I get with that shit. Oh, we get to meet the demon Skip, who is so fun. This is our first, um, time meeting him and he's like this weird big silver demon guy that has like these like has this interesting jewelry geometric shapes coming out of his head and stuff and like he looks pretty formidable but then he's just very like um I don't know relatable and funny and sarcastic and he's just a fun demon guy I like him skip an absolutely brilliant character is very funny as they chit-chat about commuting to work. Yeah, it was just cute. That was cute. Um, what did I write down about this episode? So that was just reading from the episode guide, which is called Once Bitten by Nikki Stafford. Cordelia is not okay. Fred is starting to venture out. She's been clawed, as in Cordelia. That, those are my first notes. Very co coherent, right? Um, so Fred is out of her room now. She's kind of like hiding under a table, but she's talking to people. She's kind of interacting. She spends a lot of time alone talking to herself and stuff still, which I think is totally normal for what she's been through. So I kind of like that they're kind of slowly integrating her into the group and they're kind of showing that there are after effects for her because she's basically spent the last five years like hiding out in caves in Pylea. So it totally makes sense that she would, and she's kind of an introvert, smart kid anyway. So I don't know. I think her character development so far in these last couple of episodes have been believable to me. Um, so we finally get both this episode and the next one of Angel. They both pass the Bechtel test because um, Cordelia and Fred are interacting. At first, it kind of seems like Cordelia... She's a little bit dismissive towards Fred, not completely, like she's compassionate towards her, but she's also just kind of, everyone's sort of treating her like, haha, so funny, Fred's crazy, but, which I don't like that aspect of the whole thing, but whatever. We get a lot of Lorne in these two episodes. Both of these episodes were perfectly enjoyable, actually. I didn't, um... I didn't want to skip them like I did with the first episode of the season. 
I didn't want to like, I wasn't like looking at the clock going, oh my God, how much longer? I enjoyed both of these episodes to a certain extent. Um, Angel's extremely loyal to Cordelia throughout this episode. He's just trying to, he's like almost like refusing to leave her side. He's taking care of her when she has all the boils on her face and everything. And like, he cares about her a lot. And I do think that's really sweet. Eventually they're going to take that relationship too far on this show. But right now it's a really nice friendship that they have. And like, he is very protective of her and she's worried that like she has to have the visions that she needs to pay some sort of penance for the bitchy chick that she was in her younger years. Um, and she also thinks that she won't, that they won't need her anymore. If like, you know, she has to give up the visions or if there's a way for her to give up the visions, like she's kind of not even entertaining that possibility, even though they're like killing her. Um, so it turns out that like Wolfram and Hart, when they were sending, they were sending her these visions in order to find some things that they needed to get some evil guy out of eternal hell and damnation. And they knew that if they got Angel's attention, that they could possibly convince him to go on this mission and get that guy out of hell. So it was just like some really bad dude that was in hell for a good reason. And Angel was convinced in this episode to, for the sake of Cordelia, to go and free this guy from hell. So he had to do something that he was morally against, which is interesting because this is, this kind of shows the way that morality is dealt with completely differently on Buffy than on Angel, because on Buffy, you know, with the exception of like that one time that Buffy took the stand, she was like, dude, I don't care if it's wrong or not. I don't care if the world ends, I'm saving my sister. With the exception of that one time, Buffy always does the right thing, no matter what one person it's going to hurt. Like, of course she gives a shit about her friends and she will do almost anything to save her friends, but she would never do something morally questionable to save her friends. And I just think that's kind of interesting because I do think that that makes sense for Angel's character. Like that's one sense in which I think they are making the right choice for his character. Like I do think that he would absolutely do anything for the people that he loves, even if it's morally questionable. And it sort of lays the groundwork for, you know, in the last season of Angel, which I'm making you watch, Mom. You're watching that last season with me. I'm telling you, you're going to like it. Spikes in it. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, in the last season of Angel, Angel and Wesley and Gunn and Fred and all of them, not Cordelia because she's in a motherfucking coma by that point. Don't get me started. Um, but they are, um, they run Wolfram and Hart in the last season. And so this is kind of like one of those moments where you see the groundwork laying for like someday angels going to, I mean, he, he has to, there's a balance in his character of like choosing when it's okay to like bend his moral reality. And he's definitely, his morals are adaptable. Um, they're changeable. 
He's not necessarily super fucking rigid. And that's interesting because Buffy as a character is very, this is right and this is wrong. And like, sometimes that really annoys me about her, but it's one of the central tenets of Buffy that sort of like really, if you're into tarot, that really hierophant level of morality is very black and white on Buffy. But anyway, um, so he does something completely morally questionable, lets someone, we don't know what this guy has done, but we get the idea that he is supposed to be in hell and that is his, his penance for the terrible things that he has done. And Angel gets him out to save Cordelia. So, I mean, she's still going to be having the terrible visions that like give her super awful headaches and all that shit you know, that part isn't resolved, but now she's not getting these extra physical manifestations of the visions, at least. Um, oh, and the episode ends with Angel threatening Lila. He's like, if you ever come at me through Cordelia again, I will kill you. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I did like that. I do like their friendship right now, at least. And then in the last scene of the episode is we see Darla. She's showing up at some like remote bone diviner. I don't know what you call him, but he's like throwing bones, doing fortune telling, throwing bones at the very um, beginning of that scene. She comes in and she's like, I've searched long and hard for you, blah, blah, blah. What's the deal? Nobody like basically we get the idea like she's heavily pregnant. If you forgot, <laughs> we get the idea that she has been everywhere trying to abort this vampire child. And, um, so we get the information in the scene. Like I'm sure we all knew that it was Angel's baby. Right. But we get the information in this scene that it is the, that the baby that she's now carrying is the product of her and Angel. So, and the bone diviner guy like does a little, takes some of her blood and like mixes it with some stuff and like puts his bloody hands onto her stomach, which of course she's wearing a white shirt or else what would be the point in wearing a white shirt on TV if you're not going to get blood on it? That's how you know there's going to be blood. So he puts his hands on her stomach and like he freaks the fuck out and he's like, maybe this isn't supposed to be known. And she's like, okay, well, last thing there is left to do time to go visit daddy, <laughs> which Darla says in her beautiful Julie Benz voice. Um, yeah. So there you go. There's that. Okay. Next angel episode, that old gang. So this is one, I don't really know how to talk about this episode because it's another one of those episodes that we've seen a few times now since Gunn's character was introduced where Gunn has a reason to go interact with his old like street gang family, you know, and they're mostly black people. And it's definitely like mostly black people written through the lens of a white person. And what do I have to say about that? I don't know because I don't really like, I feel like something is definitely racially insensitive about this entire plot line because the way that they're painting the whole thing is that Gunn's old friends see things in a very black and white way. They think all demons are bad and all demons should be killed. And because Gunn now knows through working with Angel 
the vampire with a soul. And he knows through meeting a lot of other... Because the show of Angel, like, we do have, like, one or two characters that we do see throughout Buffy. Clem's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. But we do get a couple of demon characters on Buffy throughout that aren't entirely bad that Buffy doesn't need to kill. But that's another situation where there's nuance in, like the goodness slash badness of demons on Angel, it's like they, they're, oh, I don't, but there isn't on Buffy, you know, for the most part. Like, there's so many demons as just likable characters on Angel, which is one of the good things about Angel, actually. I like that aspect of Angel, but um, you just don't see that on Buffy. Anyway, so because Gunn has changed and he now sees nuance in the demon and vampire world, he knows that they're not all bad. Um, his old friends are completely at odds with him. And that's what this episode is about. And I believe that this is the nail in the coffin of that entire thing. I don't think, I think Gunn is now completely 100% isolated from his old friends. They're not allowing him it just feels really rigid that, like, the plot line is either Gunn needs to accept this more sophisticated society of vampires and demons, a.k.a. richer white dudes, for the most part, richer white people. It's, it's, it feels kind of classist to me, and it feels kind of racist that, like, you know, the people that are good are the people that see nuance in demons and vampires, and those are the white people that aren't poor, you know? Whereas his old crew were mostly, like, homeless teenagers of color, and they're the ones that see the world in black and white. They're the ones that are too rigid to, like, open their minds about vampires and demons because some of them aren't bad, you know? It's just... It feels gross. And that's, yeah, I don't know. Is there anything else that I really have to say about this whole thing? Um, da, 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 da. Oh, we do get like a little bit of Cordelia and Fred bonding in this episode, which I like because Angel sort of pushes Cordelia to like, you know, talk to her, like, you know. She needs to go out. She needs to start getting out in the world because she hasn't really left the hotel, which makes total sense to me. But um, so she takes her to like the demon bar and she sings at the karaoke bar. And so we get some more Lorne. It's, you know, and that's when Gunn's old family shows up and there's like, you know, a bunch of crap, you know, it's basically like a choose kind of situation. But it was done for what it was, for all of the, like, you know, racist, classist, questioning, like, crap. Through all of that, like, if you took that out of it, which you can't, but if you could, I think that it was an interesting story. To, if you're just looking at it on the face of, like, you know, I have a different set of friends now that see life in a more nuanced way. You know, if you took the class and the race out of it, that would be an interesting story to tell. But you can't. 
because it's literally a bunch of black people that are poor against a bunch of white people that aren't. So, you know, that story is going to have stink on it, no matter how well written it is, you know? Um, what else? Gun comes in. So before, like, his his friends show up, he comes into the demon bar, and Lorne just, like, immediately, like, starts looking at Gun in that way, because Lorne's, uh, he can read people. He's a psychic. And Gun just says, don't go read me. And Lorne says, I wouldn't, but sweetie, you're a billboard. <laughs> I just really like that little exchange. Um, oh, it's sweet because, like, when all the, like, you know, drama and violence starts going down, um, with fucking machine guns, by the way, like, really, we need machine guns on a Buffyverse show? Because, how about not? But, um... Cordelia protects Fred. She, like, you know, stands in front of her. And it's just really sweet. I don't know. Like, I don't think we really get... We don't really get a good girl friendship between Cordelia and Fred. But these first... These couple of episodes that I watched today kind of give you an indication that that might be coming. But I don't think it ever does, unfortunately. But it would have been nice to see that. Um... Fred is so scared. Lauren reads Rondell. And I just wrote, this is the final time we see Gun's old friends? Question mark. And I'm pretty sure it is. Like, I don't remember a lot of details from watching Angel. So, you know, I could be wrong, but it probably is. Turns out Fred is really fucking brave. She stands up at one point because there's this whole, like, whoever's willing to kill the vampire with a soul can leave because it's almost a hostage situation. And Fred stands up and acts like she's going to kill Angel. And she just points the crossbow on the leader of the, you know, guns old gang. Um, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's it. That's really all I wrote about that episode. So let's take a little breather. I'm going to take a nice shot of whiskey and we'll get started talking about Buffy. Okay, let's see what, if I, if I had commercials, there would have been a commercial break there, but I don't put you guys through that. You're welcome. <laughs> let's um, read in the Nikki Stafford episode guide. After life, when members of the gang become possessed, they worry that something else might have come back with Buffy. <laughs> These descriptions are so, so bland, but sometimes they make me laugh. Anyway. So this, um, it seems like Nikki Stafford knows some shit about like witchcraft and Wiccan shit because, um, she had some more cool informative stuff in this episode guide description. So I'm going to read some of the bits that I highlighted in Wiccan circles. It's called the threefold law or the karmic law of return. The idea is that whatever you do will come back to you threefold. So that's, I've heard it called the Wiccan Reed, as in R-E-D-E, -E, I think is how it's spelled. And it's just kind of like the central tenet in Wicca of like, you know, it's just about karma. It's about like, no matter what you do, if you put, if you do a good spell, it's going to come back to you threefold. If you do a bad spell, it's going to come back to you threefold. So, you know, pay attention. <laughs> Don't fucking hex people unless it's worth what's coming back to you, you know? 
So similarly, if you affect the universe in a negative way, it will come back to you negatively with three times the strength. The fact that mostly negative things happen to the gang from this point on in the season would indicate that what Willow did was wrong. I just really liked how simply she put that. That's really the only thing I highlighted in this, in the description of that episode. I just really like the way that she put that. Like, this whole season fucking sucks. And that's because what Willow did was so wrong that this is the price that they all have to pay. And in this episode, when Spike says, he just says, just very simply something like, I think I wrote it down. Let's see. I'm having trouble finding it. Thing about magic, there's always consequences. Always. So, um, I'm jumping ahead, but like when he says that, it's not only like applying to this episode where there are direct consequences from the spell to bring Buffy back in this episode. And they think that they just deal with it you know, and especially in Willow's mind, she's like, we're just going to deal with this one little thing, this price that we have to pay because of the big spell that I did. And then we can move on because Willow's all about just like fucking fixing things and moving on. She just wants to fix it and pretend it never happened. That's what she wants to do. And, but Spike saying that, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, that's, that's the case with this entire season. It's coming back to them threefold. It's coming back threefold. Um, okay. So afterlife episode opens with the demon bikers. <laughs> my, my note was demon bikers issue resolves itself because basically they're just like headed out of town. And the, the explanation is that since their leader is dead, cause I think Buffy or was it Tara? Was the leader the guy that she axed in the back? Maybe. I think it was. I don't know. I, I don't know which one was supposed to be the leader of the demon bike gang, biker gang. But let's just say Tara's the one that killed the leader of the biker gang. So because of Tara, they're all out of here because their leader's gone. So whatever. So then it was just like nothing ever happened. So they ride out of town and like the next morning, the whole town is cleaned up of all the destruction, like whatever. Anyway, Xander at one point says something about his senses are primed for danger. And then all the like bikes ride past him and he like freaks out and runs and like spins around and screams and jumps around, which is of course just funny. Um, at this point, like previously on Buffy, Buffy had just run away from them. So it's picking up right where that left off. They're like walking through alleyways and stuff in Sunnydale still, right? As this like apocalyptic demon gay biker gang situation is happening. And Buffy has just been brought back and she ran away from them. And then we got the scene between her and Dawn on the tower. And so at this point, they're just sort of like getting out of the alley and wondering what to do next and how to find Buffy and where did she go? And was that really her? And is she really back? And all of this shit. They're just sort of like working each other up with all the questions that they have. And Anya says, she's broken. And Willow is immediately extremely insistent. She's not broken. She's not broken. 
like, no, we brought her back. She's going to be happy now. You know, she's very, and you see, I don't know if this is intentional on Amber Benson's part. That's the, um, the woman who plays Tara. I don't know if it was intentional on her part or not, but the way that she's looking at Willow while Willow is saying this shit, like, she's not broken. She's going to be fine. She just needs some time. Like, everything's fine. She's going to be happy now, you know, like, very delusional talk, even though they're not, they're not being heavy handed about it yet. You know, they're, this episode or this season of Buffy is really well constructed, if I remember correctly, but so far it is like, it's subtle, like the, the sort of like angst and like self-destructiveness and stuff, it comes in, it's very clear what's going on in the beginning if you know what you're looking for, but it's subtle enough that it feels organic, you know? But, so I don't know if it was a choice on her part, but the way that she's looking at Willow while she's saying all this sort of delusional shit and this sort of like, what, what is the word that I'm looking for? Sort of like insistent upon, she's, creating a narrative that she wants to be true, but she doesn't really believe it. She's saving face. She's lying a lot, which used to be something that Willow couldn't do. She used to not be able to lie. But, you know, I think the first, the first indication that Willow's morality is not what you want it to be from her is whenever she started all that fucking shit with Xander cheating on Oz back in season three or was that two? I think it was three. I don't know. Anyway, so she's saying all this shit and like the way that Tara's looking at her is sort of like, hmm, I see that you're trying to believe that, but there's something more behind why you're being so insistent about this. You know, just like the way that she's looking at her is just, it's telling to me. And I've never noticed that before. Um, I just wrote in my notes, Tara's wheels are turning. Um, then we cut to Buffy. She's home. Dawn has taken her home and she's like showing her, see, see, we're home. And she takes her in and Buffy's just very, she's very quiet. She's very disoriented. Um, Dawn ends up, it's kind of weird, but it's kind of sweet and touching and kind of feels realistic to me at the same time. But she's sort of giving Buffy kind of a tour of the house. She's sort of like, well, you know, um, Willow and Tara live here now. And um, most things haven't changed. And she like starts talking about like the furniture. Like we've taken out a few of the chairs. And like, it seems kind of silly when you look at it. But at the same time, if you were showing your sister who had been dead for the last, like, five months. Let's see. At one point, Spike says 147 days. So that's 30, 60, 90, 120. So that's four and a half months, right? Or almost five. Almost five months she's been dead. And so it's like, and she's back home again. So it makes total sense that, like, somebody would be explaining to you, like, yeah, we moved this chair over here. You might be noticing that. Like, she doesn't know what to say. And of course, like, none of it is probably really attaching to Buffy right now. She's just sort of in shock. She's just sort of walking around, like, 
doesn't understand what's happening. Every room they walk into, like Dawn will turn on a lamp that looks like a really dim lamp, but Buffy just reacts to it every time like it's super bright, which I think is also realistic. Like if you just came back from the dead, every single light would be blindingly bright, you know? Then we get a scene where um, Dawn is sort of like cleaning dirt off of Buffy. Buffy now, like my mom's like, her hair's shiny now, just magically. Like she obviously didn't take a shower, but her hair looks normal now. It doesn't look all, I wish it would have still kind of looked like fluffed out and dirty, just kind of pulled back or something. I wish they would have kind of kept that aesthetic, but her hair looks beautiful and shiny. Um, but she's just sort of like wearing some weird like white menswear button-up shirt like it's the weirdest thing like why would she be putting that on right now i don't understand like wouldn't they just like put her in something soft and cottony and pajama like because it's in the middle of the night right now and she just came back from the dead like i don't understand why they're putting her i don't maybe like from a costuming standpoint like she was wearing all black when she came back from the dead like her funeral garb was black and now she's wearing all white but she's still not okay but it was like this we can imagine is the outfit that dawn picked out for her and it's all white and it doesn't really match how she feels you know i don't know i might be looking too far into that anyway so let's see dawn starts explaining that giles because buffy buffy finally like starts asking she hasn't been asking very many questions, but she finally just asks, like, what else is different? And Dawn's like, you mean about the house? And she's like, okay, maybe let's, maybe we shouldn't be talking about the house anymore. <laughs> but then she's like, it's so weird. Giles left today. Um, we'll, we will, somebody will call him. He'll come right back, you know? And then spike comes in the door buffy like really jumps when she hears the door open and she's like oh my god what's that you know so which is you know startle response of the recently resurrected dead makes sense to me right like buffy is like super traumatized right now and they are playing it right like she acts like a person in shock and traumatized and sort of like frozen you know and we've never seen buffy like this buffy is not you know, she's, she's a fighter. She was once, like that one time she ran away when she needed to. So she's done fight or flight, but we've never seen her freeze. And so it is kind of jarring, but it makes total sense to me. I need to stop saying that over and over. But anyway, so Spike comes in the door and he's like ranting at Dawn because she kind of ran away from him. Um, and he lost her and he was coming back to the house to find her again. And, um, he's ranting, ranting, ranting. And then Buffy comes down the stairs and you get kind of a mirroring scene between like the last time we saw Buffy and Spike in these same positions with Spike at the bottom of the stairs and Buffy on the stairs. That was the moment that, that was the last moment they actually had a conversation. Oh my God. I think that's true. I think it is because when she took him with her, when she was going back to the house to like change her clothes, when they were getting ready to go to the tower for the final fight in the end of season five, 
and you know Buffy like had some kind of conversation with Spike at some point about like you know please save Dawn do whatever you can and he's like I'll protect her with my life or whatever and I think it's that same conversation that they have that super touching exchange where like or not really exchange but Spike just says to Buffy as she's walking up the stairs he says I know you'll never love me but you treat me like a man or something something along those lines um I know I'm a demon. I know I'm a bad guy. I know you'll never love me, but you treat me like a man. Something like I'm paraphrasing. I knew that that was like significant that like him, her coming down the stairs and him seeing her was a mirroring of that exact scene. But I forgot that was the last conversation they had while she was alive. I mean, not literally because like they would have gone together like to the tower or whatever it was. Um, but that's the last conversation we saw them have. So it's like the next time he sees her alive, five months later, she's coming down the stairs. And he very, at first he thinks it's the Buffy bot, which makes no sense because she was just torn apart like half an hour ago, their time. But whatever, he immediately recognizes it's Buffy and he's like, what's going on? And Dawn's like, I have no idea. <laughs> and, you know, I just wrote, Spike gets Buffy he sees her like he is the first and only person for a while that knows how to meet her where she is. He immediately understands that she dug her way out of a grave. He immediately just sort of takes her and sits her down. And he, the way that he asks her questions is completely different from everyone else in her life right now. Everyone else in her life right now, for to a certain extent, Dawn is is being a little bit more understanding, but um, than like all the rest of her friends that are just sort of bombarding her with questions and overstimulating her and like overwhelming her right now. Spike is the only one that's just sort of like. His empathy is just right there. He understands exactly what she's going through. He understands without her needing to say anything. And he asks the right questions. Like everyone else just doesn't really know how to relate to her right now. They don't understand what she's going through. They don't understand how to deal with, because Buffy's never been this kind of depressed before. I mean, really what we're dealing with is depression in Buffy throughout this season. And everyone else doesn't know how to deal with it. This is not the Buffy that they know. They know the take charge Buffy. They know the emotionally charged Buffy. And she has a very flat affect throughout a lot of the season because of the extreme depression that she's in. And that's the reason why Spike can get through to her because he can understand this level of angst, you know. And he's just very gentle with her. They've got the, like, I swear they put, like, lip balm or Vaseline or something just, like, right under his eyes so that when he, like, looks up at her whenever he's at the bottom of the stairs, like, there's just that shimmer right underneath his eyes, like, that makes him more sympathetic looking. <laughs> and they do that a lot with him, particularly in, like, the beginning parts of the season when we're supposed to be feeling increasingly more and more sympathetic towards Spike increasingly more and more like having a crush on him like we're being manipulated to love him just like Buffy is right now anyway but 
so he sits her down and he asks her, you know, she asks him, how long has she been gone? And he says 147 days. And then he says, how long was it for you where you were? Which is just a very kind way to ask that question, you know, how long was it for you where you were? He's not demanding that she tell him where she was. She's, he's not like, he's not trying to like push a narrative onto her that he wants to be true for her. Like all of her friends are and will be some of, you know, he's just asking her her own experience and then he waits. He doesn't react when she doesn't immediately answer the question. And whenever she gives like a very short response, he accepts it for what she decided to give him. He looks into her eyes and waits for her to answer the question without, you know, throughout this episode, particularly, we see the contrast of like Spike is willing to listen. He's willing to ask the right questions and then wait for the answers. He doesn't have any specific expectations of her right now. He is meeting her where she is and he is giving her the space to have any emotions that she's having. He's accepting her where she is. And um, this is kind of jumping ahead, but like throughout the episode, like everyone's always asking Buffy, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And it struck me this time watching it that like the way that everyone else is asking her, are you okay? Is sort of like, you're okay, right? You're okay, right? Like the tone and the emphasis of the way that they're asking her is, you're okay, right? Re re it's, they're asking her to reassure them that she's okay. Whereas the way that, I, I don't even know exactly how to articulate this, but the way that Spike asks her if she's okay at the very end of the episode, that very last scene, he asks her if she's okay. And it's more, are you okay? You know, like he actually wants to know if she's okay. He doesn't want her to reassure him in any way. It's not about him in this one fucking instance in Spike's entire goddamn life. He is being exactly the right kind of energy that someone like Buffy being super depressed needs right now. This is literally the only time in his life that he's been this compassionate. Like we've seen him be super compassionate towards Drusilla before, so it does track that he is compassionate towards people that he's in love with, but that's as far as his compassion ever goes. And we will see later that he is extremely manipulative towards Buffy and abusive, but right now he's not being that way. And doesn't that just sort of mirror abusive relationships, right? Because I mean, there's a reason why you fall for people that you fall for. And if they end up being abusive, that's not the way they started out being. They started out being like people that are extremely controlling and manipulative. They are kind of like Spike, actually, because they're usually emotionally intelligent people and they know how to, they know how to empathize with people even if they, you know, are actually like narcissists or sociopaths or whatever, and they don't actually feel what people are feeling, they know how to 
recognize what people are feeling and they know what the right responses are to people. And at this point, I don't feel like the character of Spike is... I don't think we're supposed to think that he's trying to manipulate Buffy. I think at this exact point, he's genuinely so compassionate and empathetic towards her. And he cares about her. And he loves her. At this point, that is where we're at. Like, it it hasn't switched over to being abusive yet. And I don't even know if that entirely... That's not true. I was going to say, I don't think that happens until they start having sex, but that's not true. He starts being manipulative and abusive towards her before that. You guys, I'm not even a full page through my notes of this episode. I got to get going here. Um, I'm just jumping ahead of myself without looking at my notes. So I've gotten through some of this without realizing. It. Okay. Everyone else shows up at the house and um, they just burst in and Spike just immediately without a word, like he gets up and he walks out the door. He just can't even, he's not even going to add to this cacophony right now. And everybody just starts immediately like asking her questions. Like, are you hungry? Do you want some pizza? What's going on? We brought you back, Buffy. Isn't that great? Aren't you happy? Like, and it's just extremely overwhelming. And I find this really infuriating because I think, I think this isn't super realistic. I mean, I guess from the standpoint of we are, we are to believe that everyone's just sort of selfishly motivated in this season. And that's what leads to all the self-destruction. It's the selfishly motivated behaviors and how everyone's just sort of like having their own identity problems within themselves and like whatever which that's what this entire season's about. But I just, I don't know. It's like, are these people even Buffy's best fucking friends? They're just having zero empathy for her in this moment. They don't, they have no idea how to react to the fact that she's here now. And they're just bombarded barding her. And I love that, like, Dawn just tells them to back off. She's like, hey, like, even though Dawn doesn't completely understand what Buffy's going through and she's not really what Buffy needs right now either, she at least is being gentle with her and she at least understands that, like, everybody, like, ganging up on her and asking her a thousand questions is not what she needs right now. Um just something about this, like different people reacting to, like, I've had a lot of moments like this in my life. I am always the freeze of fight, flight, or freeze, always. And so I really, and I've, I've gone through some depressions in my life. Um, I say that like with a question mark, just because I have a hard time like putting that shit into words and I don't really know how to conceptualize it. But like, I definitely have experiences with depression, not only like with myself, but like through seeing other people go through it. And that sort of like, when people want you to, I've just had so many moments in my life, whether or not I'm depressed, where people want you to I don't even know how to say it. Like people want you to 
paint a picture for them of your life or they want even just like normal communication things like somebody asks you how they how you are and in the instances where they actually want to know they don't just want you to say fine and move on i don't know how to say i don't know how to translate how i am to someone and so i kind of freeze up and i kind of get quiet and like it's very 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 rare to have another human being treat you the way that spike is treating you the way that spike is treating buffy this way i just feel like spike is is doing this to me you know he's looking at me <laughs> um but yeah the way that spike is treating buffy in this episode is very rare to have someone treat you in that way to have someone actually give you the space to process and say what you need to say you know and to actually not want anything specific from you just want you to say what you want to say they just want to be there for you for whatever you need to say there are people like that exist they do but it is very rare and to see it displayed in this episode is just it gets me it gets me every time oh my god i get so emotional this is the scene like where my mom had to like hand me a kleenex because i'm just like <laughs> you know <laughs> i just cry so much watching this season of buffy i don't think i mean we'll see but i don't think there's a single episode of the season of buffy that i won't be crying during i would be surprised if that is the case oh my god so willow actually says to buffy in this scene where they're overwhelming her she's just come back from the dead she actually says to her buffy be happy we got you out first of all what's the deal with everyone just assuming that she was in like a demon dimension like why are they just assuming that like she was a warrior of the people she was a slayer she did all of this good why do they automatically assume that she was in a hell dimension just because angel was in a hell dimension but angel was like a bad dude most of his life so it makes sense that he was in a hell dimension whenever buffy sent him to hell you know i don't get why they're automatically assuming that except for just you know plot reasons they're that's why so ugh, buffy be happy so at one point so this this is the first time like i've noticed that this time around that willow's saying to buffy buffy be happy and then later dawn says to buffy everyone just wants to see you happy and then at the end of the episode um buffy thanks everyone and i don't think she says anything about being happy though the only she says that she was happy when she's talking to spike at the end when she says that whenever she was dead she was happy um so xander and anya are leaving at this point they're going home and um they see spike outside leaning against the tree in the front yard crying and which is totally relatable right um and we get like you know spike again he really sees everyone he has a lot of emotional intelligence that's why he's able to be so manipulative to people but he in this moment he's sort of 
pointing out to Xander, like, yeah, I think the reason why you didn't tell me is because Willow was afraid that Buffy wasn't going to come back right and that I wouldn't allow her to kill what comes back because I wouldn't be able to let any version of Buffy die. And Xander's like, what? No, Willow wouldn't do that. And Spike's like, really? You don't think so? So Spike's telling us straight up right from the very beginning of the season, like, Willow's got some problems. <laughs> Willow's a very powerful witch and she does whatever the fuck she wants. And that's going to be a problem. He's straight up pointing that out right from the beginning of this season. Um, and then he says the thing, thing about magic, there's always consequences, always. Um, then we get a scene with Willow and Tara. Willow's coming to bed. She says that she talked to Giles. Well, there's like some drunk, some drunk youth walking down the street. <laughs> Making me feel nostalgic. <laughs> um, anyway. So... Tara, it's it's mostly Willow talking in the scene, but she's kind of talking about... So we get, like, that she talked to Giles, that Giles said he was going to come back in, like, a couple of days. And um, Tara's like, well, how did he react? And she's like, well, I think he was weirded out, but happy. And Tara's like, well, that's understandable. And you get immediately that Willow is peeved. You know, she wants recognition for this amazing thing that she did, this super powerful spell. She is a Slytherin. She wants recognition for the power that she has. And she wants thanks and gratitude. She has a specific idea in her head of how this should have gone. That Buffy's just gonna, you know, reappear next to her grave that they didn't dig up and just hug Willow and say, thank you. You were, you brought me out of a hell dimension. I love you so much. Like that's what she was expecting. And she didn't get that, you know? And so this conversation is sort of just Tara is acknowledging that she understands what you know, she's giving Willow some validation, but she's also kind of telling her, look, it's going to take some time, you know? And Willow even asks her, like, would I be a bad person if I am paraphrasing, but would I be a bad person if I wanted Buffy to be grateful? And Tara doesn't answer it. She doesn't answer that question. She says, give her time, you know? which I think is telling that she doesn't say, no, no, you're not a bad person. <laughs> because I think it is kind of shitty for her to want that right now. Like, she's not. I don't understand. Like, Tara is putting herself in Buffy's shoes to a certain extent. Not to the extent that I think Tara is capable, but, you know, everybody else is sort of blind. And Anya is too. Anya sort of understands a little bit as well. Like in conversations between Xander and Anya, you know, Anya's really the voice of reason. She kind of, Anya's the voice of reason in that duo. Tara's the voice of reason between Tara and Will. 
but it's the people that are closest to Buffy, Xander and Willow, that seem to be, they have blinders on. They just wanted Buffy back so badly that they were willing to do anything and they didn't actually think it through. You know, they didn't dig up her grave first. They didn't think about, like, how jarring that would be for her. They didn't even consider the fact that maybe Buffy wasn't in hell, because why would she be? You know, they really weren't willing to even look at all of the possibilities. And Tara says this in the most understanding way that a person ever could. Um, she reminds me of my friend Laura. My friend Laura is, like, she's one of those, I'm just, like, hard like really never heard her say a bad word about anyone. And even when like, she's kind of expressing that she doesn't love a certain aspect of a certain person, she says it in the most diplomatic, tactful, empathetic, and understanding way that a person could ever fucking say something like that. And it's just, I look up to her, but anyway, Tara is like that. And Oh, I just never realized. Yeah, my friend Laura is a lot like Tara, actually. I have a real-life Tara, guys. Isn't that special for me? Um, but anyway, like, Tara says to Willow, like, I think maybe we were all just sort of assuming crash positions. You know, we were, we were really tensed up and we were expecting the spell to fail and we actually just didn't prepare for it to go right. And Willow's just sort of she doesn't even hear it. She can't even hear Tara right now. She's just sort of like, yeah, I guess I wanted her to be thankful. Like whatever. Um, then we start getting like the sort of possessive elements, possession elements of this episode. Like Buffy, like an apparition of Buffy appears to Tara and Willow in the middle of the night, like after they've sort of fallen asleep. And she says, among other things, she says, did you cut the throat? Did you pat its head? And she says some stuff about like the blood dried on your hands, didn't it? You didn't know what you were doing, your children. You know, she says like a lot of stuff like that. And later, Tara asks her, asks Willow, did you understand what it was saying? And Willow's like, well, I understand the words, but no, you... She's still not admitting, like, what she had to do. Like, she does not, not only, like, does she not admit to her friends that, like, the scope of the spell was so much more dangerous than they thought, which doesn't make sense because Tara would know. Tara knows this shit, but whatever. They make it seem like Willow was in charge of this whole thing and she was the only one that knew every aspect of the spell, that knew what was entailed in it, like everyone else was just in the dark. Which, whatever, I already bitched about how Anya and Tara both would have known what a spell like this would entail. Like, they don't get to, like... Xander can claim, you know, we can believe that Xander doesn't fucking know shit about this fucking spell. Of course he doesn't. You know, don't speak Latin in front of the books, Xander. But everyone else, they don't know. They know. I mean, he doesn't know. They know. You know? <laughs> but it just, you know, this is the first time I think, like, Willow's been kind of dodgy kind of not telling the full truth, but up until this point where she outright lies to Tara, 
Like, yeah, I understood the words, but she did know. She knew exactly. She killed a baby fucking deer. Okay? She killed an innocent. An innocent deer. She embodied an innocent deer with the soul of an angel. And she killed it. (laughs) She slaughtered it. And, like, I don't know. Like, yeah, that's really kind of, like, a lot. But I feel like if she would have told them exactly what all of this entails, like, yeah, they might have had a few more arguments about whether or not they should do the spell. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they would have decided not to do the spell. Because getting Buffy back is a huge motivator. And I'm not necessarily going to say that that spell was wrong. Like, it's wrong in the sense that, like, it was hugely dangerous and it turns out they were ripping Buffy out of a heaven dimension you know, it's wrong in that sense, but is it wrong to get Buffy back? Because if we didn't get Buffy back, we wouldn't have all the value that this season and season seven brought to us. I wouldn't be talking about the Buffy show anymore if they didn't bring her back. So do the ends justify the means? I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, um, but yeah, this is the, I feel like this might be the first time we see Willow outright with no hesitation, lie to Tara. And it hurts. It hurts to see anyone trying to deceive Tara. Okay? I don't like it. I get very defensive. Um, yeah, there's just different possessions. Like, Anya's cutting her own face. Like, the best one is when the demon sort of possesses, um, or does, I don't know why I said sort of, possesses dawn and she like breathes fire and just like uh michelle trachtenberg is really great at that sort of like horror possession kind of acting like really good was she ever the protagonist in like a traditional horror movie if so i need to watch that yeah i need to watch that i need to look into that um oh (laughs) one of my um comments one of my notes was terrible peasant tops all oh my god so that scene where they're all like sitting in the backyard talking about how they now have some sort of demon possession situation they have to deal with and it might have something to do with the spell to bring Buffy back and blah 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 and they're having that conversation in the backyard in the morning and Anya's wearing a terrible early 2000s peasant top Willow's wearing a even more terrible early 2000s peasant top. Tara's wearing a really terrible early 2000s peasant top. And then Buffy comes out. She's wearing sort of a frilly menswear adjacent black top. So it's not terrible. But my God, fashion was awful in 2001. Oh my God. Anyway. So... (laughs) At one point, Anya says, I knew it was going to end badly, talking about the whole spell. I should have said something. (laughs) And then at one point, like, Buffy's trying to explain that she saw all the photographs in her room, like, turned to dead pictures, pictures of them dead. And the way that she's wording it is really strange, which is the way that I word everything all the time. So I really identified with that because everyone's kind of looking at her like, what the fuck are you talking about? And then at some point she just says, and I just thought maybe it was me. Maybe I was crazy. And Anya's like, well, maybe you are going crazy from hell, you know, 
Everybody just keeps saying that to her. Like, jet lag from hell must be hell, right? Like, everybody keeps assuming that she just came back from hell. Um, they go into research mode, they're at the magic box, and Buffy's just, she's still really checked out, she's still really like, you know, thousand yard stare kind of thing, and at one point she just says, I miss Giles. And Willow clearly takes that personally. Like, it has nothing to do with anyone, she just misses Giles. Because, actually, ooh, is this like a daddy issue thing? I never really made that connection before, but like, for most of the season, Giles is absent. And this is the season where Buffy ends up getting herself a nice abusive boyfriend. Um, interesting. <laughs> but she does say, I miss Giles. And everyone just like, and after she says this and Willow's like, we'll get it done. It'll be okay. You know, like, I know I'm a poor substitute, blah, blah, blah. She's taking it personally. And then Buffy's just sort of like, oh God, like everyone's misunderstanding. Every, every time she says anything, they all just stop and stare at her. And they do that in this scene where they're all just sort of looking at her. And all she said was, I miss Giles. That's it. That's the only thing she said. And everyone's just staring at her and they're waiting for her to kind of like reassure them or something. They definitely have expectations from her and I can feel those expectations. And Buffy's just like, oh, I gotta get out of here. So she decides to go patrol and everybody sort of overreacts and like talks about it. Like, yeah, sure, you should patrol. Or like, are you sure you want to do that? Do you want any of us to come with you? And they're asking her all these fucking questions. She's just like, I gotta get the fuck out of here. And she leaves. And we see her just sort of despondently walking through the cemetery. And there's this gorgeous shot where she's like walking past a statue with wings. And it looks like Buffy has wings. And that's very intentional. But, and in fact, that's probably like a little bit of foreshadowing for like, she was an angel in heaven before she got ripped out of there, you know? So she's sort of despondently like walking through the cemetery. And then she breaks into Spike's crypt. Um, Spike is like, he had just punched a wall downstairs. He hears, you know, someone break into his crypt. He goes upstairs with a weapon. He sees that it's Buffy. Like she's broken into his crypt so many times, but it's always been to confront him for some reason, to beat him up for information. But this time she's just sort of like walking around in his like sort of living room, quote unquote, space. And just kind of like looking at his things and just walking around. She wants his companionship right now because he is providing the kind of quiet. She wants to be around someone, but she wants to be around someone that's not going to demand anything of her, you know? She wants solace, kind of. So, and he provides that, you know? He... He apologizes to her for not saving her, for not protecting Dawn the way that he promised he would, um, all that stuff. She just sort of sits there, you know, is she really listening? I don't know. I don't think she really says anything really in the scene. And Spike, you know, he doesn't look at her like she needs to be saying something. Again, he doesn't have any expectations of her. 
He's just sort of like that person that understands depression. And he's like, well, let's go ahead and hang out anyway, even if you're going to look despondent and not say anything. That's fine. I can just be around you because you're my friend. You know, he's providing that for her right now. And it's just, it's so sweet. It's so sweet. I'd fall for Spike too, okay? As much as I'm going to like talk about what an abusive boyfriend he is and compare him to my old abusive boyfriend and all of that shit that we're going to talk about in this season, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't fall for him too. So for all y'all out there that like at different points in this season, you're going to think I'm shit talking Spike and you might even get your hackles up about that. But believe me, I love him too. I do. I don't think Buffy does, though. Sorry, Mom. She doesn't love him. She does not love him. <laughs> um, okay, so then they figure it out during research mode. Um, Willow figures it out. That, like, they made this demon. This demon was created by the spell. And it's attached to the spell. And the only way that it can continue to live is if it kills the subject of the spell so it has to kill Buffy and it's possessing Xander at the moment so it overhears that part of the conversation so it goes directly to Buffy then Willow and Tara but mostly Willow and this is a point that I think should be made like Willow and Tara are doing the spell to make this demon solid because it's sort of like ethereal and it can hurt Buffy but Buffy can't hurt it because it's kind of a ethereal mist but they're doing a spell to make it solid so that Buffy can kick its fully embodied ass and at some point during the spell like Willow disengages because her and Tara are holding hands and they're chanting and they're doing the whole spell thing but she disengages from Tara and she finishes the spell herself and in the past, I've always seen that as like, wow, Willow just really channeled the magic there. She's such a powerful witch, blah de blah blah But this time watching it, I thought, no, she deliberately broke off from Tara so that she could finish the spell herself, so that she would be the one responsible for that spell. She is really, like, she's already having sort of that addictive response to magic doing that we will see later as just like the big metaphor for willow this season is that magic equals drugs and willow's addicted you know and i think we see that in this moment actually um xander is a snail driving a car very slowly <laughs> um no more apocalyptic Sunnydale. It's all cleaned up. So the next morning after Buffy decapitates the the demon when it gets fully embodied, uh, Buffy is like sending Dawn off to school and giving her a lunch. And she's wearing the most awful like beige and taupe, like flowy, gross mom outfit. Oh my God. It's bad. It's just bad oh i hate this is like one of buffy's worst outfits of all time anyway and this is where dawn says you know everyone wants to see you happy that's all they want now now they can see you being happy that's all they want 
And then Buffy immediately goes to the magic box where everyone is for some reason, because I don't know, Xander doesn't have a job right now. I don't know. Everybody's there. And Buffy tells everyone what they need to hear. She just does she just does that because this entire episode everyone's constantly on her because they have expectations from her so she just gives them what they want and for the most part she doesn't the only lie that she tells in this little speech to them is i was in hell you brought me back you pulled me out of there you know i can't tell you what that means to me every single statement was not a lie except for when she said I was in hell that everything else was the truth and she does say it with such a flat affect but they still react to her with like yay Buffy and they hug her and they're so relieved because on some level I'm sure that they understand on some level I would like to believe that they know that she's not entirely okay but they just want to believe it so badly that they're accepting it as the truth you know i i'm not gonna i just don't think that they're so dumb that they just completely wholeheartedly believe it it's just everybody has such blinders on right now for what they want to be the truth and that's the backstory for everything that happens in the season you know Anyway, then Buffy goes outside to the alley and Spike just happens to be there and, um, and he, she says she wants to be alone. He starts to try to leave, but you know, sunlight, how the fuck did he get there in the first place? But whatever, TV's got a TV, right? And he's like, his feet are like at the edge of the shadow and he's like, uh, she's like, it's okay. I can be alone with you here. And that's a truth, right? Like, I know I'm just going to be repeating myself if I say too much about it, but she can be alone with Spike because, like I said before, she wants companionship, but she doesn't want anyone to demand anything of her. And currently, Spike is not demanding anything of her. Their relationship in the past was always Spike demanding things from her, but right now, for some reason, he's being empathetic and understanding, and he's giving her the space that she needs. And because of that, and this is the moment where he asks her in a way that no one else has, but it's the same question that everyone else has asked her multiple times throughout this episode, but he asks it differently. He asks her, are you okay? Like, like an open-ended question where not only does he want her to answer the question, he wants her to tell him details. You know, it's more of an emphasis on her and what she's feeling and not the expectations. Again, I'm just repeating myself, but some of the things that she says about her experience of being dead, she was happy, at peace, warm, loved, finished and complete if that's not a description of i mean i don't even i don't believe in heaven and hell but if that's not a description of like eternal bliss i don't know what is that's really good and she just says i i think i was in heaven and then she says 
something that just really hits home. Like both my mom and I were just like, yeah, is, I mean, that's, that's the description. My mom was seeing it more from the point of view of depression, like the world, every moment living in the world can be agonizing when you're depressed. But also I, I was seeing it from sort of a standpoint of just being autistic and overstimulated. Like when Buffy said, everything here is hard and bright and violent. And like, she says something about just like getting to the next breath, taking the next step. It's agonizing. Like I'm paraphrasing that part, but then she says everything in this world, this is hell. And he's just looking at her, you know, he doesn't say anything. He just lets her talk. And that's why he's getting the information that no one else is. And then she gets up to walk away because she's like, wow, I just said a lot of shit. So she just has to get away at this point. And he's still just like sitting there and he hasn't said anything, not a single thing. He asked her if she was okay. He told her that he could, that he, if there was anything that he could do. And then she started talking and he said nothing. And she starts walking away and he's just sort of shocked, you know, and she just says over her shoulder, they can never know, never. And then that's the end of the episode. And again, I wrote as the very last line of my notes, just like the last episode, Buffy is not okay. She not, she not okay at all. And she's not going to be for a long time. Okay. Ratings for this episode. I don't think I've written. No, I haven't. I haven't written anything down. Uh, let's see. <laughs> object of the episode. Um, the only thing I can think of is Tara's like crocheted bedspread. <laughs> I do. I do just love it. For some reason, I'm just really into that whole like crochet doily look <laughs> into it. Um, but, um, Michael's like, no, no, no crochet doily bedspread ever. No. So I know I never get to have one, but, <laughs> and I, I'm sure that I've used that as my object of the episode before because, um, Tara has had that forever. I do kind of like, I think just as my object of the episode, I kind of just want the whole vibe of Tara and Willow's bedroom because it's just so interesting. They did like set design and prop department and all that stuff. They did such a great job with sort of like meshing the styles of Willow and Tara and Joyce, because it used to be her room. You know, it's, there's a little element of Joyce in there too, particularly just the wallpaper, but the wallpaper is this really cool, like early nineties, like flowery taupe pattern that's like it's so 1993 it's just perfect it really is <laughs> might even be 1991 I don't know but I really like that bedroom and this is the first time we get to see it Tara and Willow's bedroom when they're living in Joyce's bedroom and we get to see it again but it's just great it's just great because we already know it as Joyce's bedroom, but, and we hardly ever get to see that in, I don't know, like 
place setting is such an important thing to me. And like, I'm always paying attention to the rooms that people are in. And honestly, part of the reason why I love Buffy is because the prop and set department does such a good job with like bedrooms and people's living spaces and like Spike's living space is so 100% him, you know, Angel's living space was so 100% him. Like they are so good with that shit. So yeah, honestly, Taryn Willow's bedroom, that is my object of the episode. Outfit of the episode. Oh God, they were all bad. They were all either totally forgettable or totally terrible. I thought everyone looked like shit in this episode. Except, okay, I give it to Willow at the very end of the episode. She was wearing this like super crazy, like fuzzy sweater that was like kind of like a, a boat neck, boat neckline straight down. Like the, there were, it was sleeveless, but it was like cut kind of straight down. So it kind of covered her shoulders, but not really. And then she was wearing like a red and black plaid skirt. So that was good. I'll give the outfit of the episode to Willow. Quote of the episode. Um, I really don't know. Maybe when Anya says to Xander that he is, what does she say? That Xander, you're like a snail driving a car very slowly. <laughs> um, yeah, not, not a great episode for quotes, honestly. MVP of the episode. Um, I'm going to give it to Spike because he's being exactly the right kind of empathetic that Buffy needs right now. And he's giving her the space that she needs and all of those things that I've said 800 times. Five by five. I mean, at this point, I think, I mean, I think I've been doing it a while, but I'm just going to give a rating out of five on how much I like the episode because that makes the most sense. Um... I do think this is a very effective episode of television. Um, I'll give it a four. There you go. Okay. So that's it for, um, our discussion on afterlife. Stay tuned next week where we will talk about the angel episode briefly, Carpe Noctum, and then the Buffy episode at length called Flooded. That's the one where, oh my God, that's, that's gonna, I'm gonna be doing a lot of ranting in that episode. That's the one where like, you know, Buffy's been, a, you know, resurrected from the dead for like two weeks and suddenly there are all these bills that she has to pay and like everyone's expecting her to just like fucking figure it out, figure out all the paperwork of life, even though like you were just dead two weeks ago and like everyone's being totally unreasonable, expecting way too much of her. But we can talk about that next week. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Bye!